The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. Well, today, uh, as we get into the passage, just, just two words, the title of my message, and the title of my message is this, is resisting temptation. Can you say those two words with me? Resisting temptation. And I, I want to begin with sort of an observation. I wonder if you've noticed this as well. Uh, one of the things that I've noticed about temptation is how powerful the pull of temptation can be, even in moments that aren't that big of a deal. So, so for example, uh, a little while ago, I was driving westbound on Sterling Road, and I got to volunteer. Some of you guys know where that area is. It's a, it's a four-way stop sign at that intersection. Now, many of you who drive, you know how four-way stop signs work. When you get to the intersection, it works like this. The guy who gets there first goes what? They go first, okay? Guy who gets there second goes second. Guy who gets there third goes third. Fourth guy, he waits to the end. So I get to the intersection, and I'm paying attention, and I am the third person there. And I let the first guy go. I let the second guy go, and now it's my turn, right? And so I accelerate into the intersection, and as I do, I notice that there's another car over here to my right who got there fourth. Now, he either, one, does not know the rules, two, does not care about the rules, or three, was not paying attention. So as soon as I accelerate into the intersection, what do you think he starts doing? He also accelerates into the intersection, and we almost get into a massive collision. I have to slam on my brakes, he speeds past me, and he moves forward. Now, let me just be clear, this, wa- this moment was not that big of a deal in the sense that there was no accident, nobody got injured, no one got a ticket, but how many of you know in that moment, the pull of temptation to respond in a disproportionately angry way was very strong? Does anybody here, so, so I know I'm not alone, anybody here ever felt that as driving in South Florida before? Okay, a few of you here are willing to admit it. And all of a sudden, I felt this urge, man, to hit the gas and get right up on his bumper and lay on the horn and flail my arms and yell things out at him. And quick disclaimer, not a good idea, okay? Just not a good, especially if you're a pastor, that can get really awkward when you get to the stoplight next, you know? And they roll down their window and they're like, aren't you the pastor of Crossway Church? And I'm like, yes, I am. And if you keep driving like that, you need Jesus. Like, you really... (laughs) really need Jesus. Now, I've noticed, and you probably have as well, that the pull of temptation, even in moments that are not that big of a deal, is incredibly strong. But but guys, think about this with me. Have you ever noticed that the pull of temptation in moments that are, are a big deal can be really, really, really strong when there's a lot on the line, when uh, the emotions are high, when the consequences are high. And so the question I want to ask today, and I want to process through with you as we look at the book of James here, is how can you and I become men and women who don't just crumble at every wind of temptation? Like, like how can you and I become men and women with confidence and clarity and character in the moment, in the face of temptation, in a culture of compromise? Like, how can you students be middle school students and high school students who stand strong in the moment of temptation? And the reason I ask that question is because I think that most of you sitting here this morning want that for yourself. I don't think there is anybody in this room who at the end of your life, you want to look back at your life and go, you know what? Every time temptation knocked on the door, I opened the door and let it in. No, you want to be a man and you want to be a woman of character and a culture of compromise. 
So how do we do that? And James is going to talk to us. I'm just lay it out real quick where we're going to head this morning, and we'll take it from the text. First thing is this. James is going to say, if you're going to, if you're going to know how to stand in the moment of temptation, you have to understand the source of temptation. Second, he's going to talk to us about a couple strategies of temptation, and then I'm going to end the message with one thought on what happens when you give in and when you fail and when you fall into temptation. So we'll jump in. James chapter 1, verse 13. If you don't mind putting it on the screens, I want you guys to notice the first two words. Would we actually, can we all just read the first two words aloud with me? Let's do it. It says this, when tempted. Let's do it one more time, like you had a shot of Cuban coffee before you came. Here we go. Ready? When tempted. There we go. When tempted, James says, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Now, I I think it's important that James says when tempted and he doesn't say if tempted. Like he's not writing and saying, hey, if you are one of those people who struggle with temptation, he says when tempted. Why does he say when tempted? Because temptation is a universal human experience. When I was using that opening illustration about the feeling of being tempted while I was driving, there's nobody in the room who is listening to that thinking to yourself, oh, you know, I don't really know what that feels like. I've never ever once been tempted. No, like all of us have been tempted. The, the, the person here who's been a Christian the longest to the one who's just about to get baptized next week, all of us are tempted. The oldest person to the youngest, all of us are tempted. The most educated to the least, all of us are tempted. Temptation is not a sin. It's what we do with temptation. So the question, James says, when tempted, the question is not, will you be tempted in life? The question is, what are you going to do about it? Because all of us are going to be tempted. And so James continues and he says this, verse 13 again, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Pay attention here, verse 14, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their, notice those next three words, can you say them out loud with me, own evil desire and entice. First thing you need to know, if you're going to stand in the face of temptation is this the source of temptation isn't out there it's in here the source of temptation isn't out there it's right in here now there's a tendency that we often have maybe you've noticed this in yourself at times i i know i have is that when, when we give in to temptation and when we sin sometimes rather than taking responsibility for that Rather than owning it and learning from it, what we often try to do is look for someone or something to blame. It's not me. Well, I mean, I, mean, I failed. Yeah, yeah, but it's, we want to point our fingers. The first direction we often point, well, the first direction we often point is vertical up to God. Notice James says, when tempted, don't say that. Who is tempting you? Who does he say? Don't say what? God is tempting you. Don't say God is tempting you. He says, why? Because God cannot be tempted by evil. Now, here's how I think this oftentimes works. What, what, what actually happens is that we, we get in these moments or really difficult seasons where we're feeling this real strong pull of temptation, and we think things like this. Well, God, like, you are all-powerful, and God, you are all-knowing. God, you're sovereign over my life, and you've allowed me to be in this situation, and if you wanted to, God, you could remove me from this situation, but because you've not removed me from this situation, well, then you're really the source of my temptation. So, so, so you think things like this, hey, God, like you have given me this life and I'm not as happy as I want to be in this life. And so because I'm not as happy as I want to be in this life, well, yeah, it's not my fault that every night I reach for the bottle and I drink more than I should. It's not my fault. It's whose fault. No, it's your fault. God, you have given me this difficult life. God, 
Like you've given me the spouse, the old ball and chain that I'm stuck with. And God, I mean, you're the one who gave her or him to me. So it's not my fault if I feel tempted to kind of look for other avenues of interest. God, you're the one who placed me in this difficult financial situation. It's not my fault that I lie and cheat my customers to make more money. It's not me, God. It's, well, it's you. You're the one who's tempting me. And James says, guys, no, that's not how we're going to respond. That's not how you should respond. It's not God who's tempting you. Number one, God cannot be tempted by evil. But number two, there's something you need to understand by God, about God. If you go to, and you read this when you, when you get home, the, the final few verses of this passage, and some of you who've been Christians for a long time actually might know this passage by heart, he says this, he says, don't you know that every good and perfect gift comes from who? Does anybody know? Comes from God. He says, the, comes down from the Father of lights. Here's what you need to know about God and his disposition towards you. God is not for your failure. God is for your flourishing. Oh, J- James is like, listen. He's like, he says, listen, everything good in your life, everything good, everything true, everything beautiful comes from God. He's not for your failure. He's for your flourishing. There's never been a situation ever in your life where you're going through a moment of temptation where God says, hey, angels, come over here. Let's watch her. I hope she fails this one. Because God is not for your failure. He is for your flourishing. So, so James says this, right? the source of temptation isn't out there. It's in here. First direction we often point is up to God. Well, it's your fault. But let me tell you the second place we point. The second place we like to point is horizontally to other people. It's not, it's not me. It's, well, my neighbor, if you knew my neighbor. My boss, well, if you knew my boss. My children, if you knew my children. My coworkers, if you, my small group leader. My, which one? Point at other people. Now, this whole idea of blaming others for our own sin and our own falling into temptation, this has been perfected by children. Any parents in the house know what I'm talking about? Like, you're in the kitchen doing the dishes, and then you hear a little commotion in one of the rooms. You walk over to the room, you open the door, and you say, what is happening right now? And one of your children points to another one of your children and says this, he hit me. And then you look to the one who hit them, like, why, why would you hit him? And then what does the one who hit him say? He called me stupid, right? And the one who called him, yeah, but he called me ugly, and back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. What are they doing? No one's taking responsibility. They're just trying to blame. It's not my fault. It's their fault. Them. They are the source of my temptation. Now, your kids have perfected this, but they didn't start it. It actually goes all the way back to the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, our first parents, the Bible says in Genesis 1 and 2, God creates them. He places them in the garden. He gives them everything in the garden for their enjoyment. He says there's just one thing. Don't eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Okay, sounds pretty easy for us today. We're like, seriously, guys, that's what you tripped up on. Like, just the one thing. But they did. And when they do, their eyes are opened. They recognize their shame. They cover themselves with fig leaves. And the Bible says in Genesis 3 that God was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And he's like, yo, Adam, where are you? And he says, well, God, we hid because we were naked. And God says to him, well, how do you know you were naked? Did you eat the fruit of the tree? Now, any of my Bible scholars here this morning know what Adam's response to that question was? Let me, tell you, let me tell you what it was. He, he didn't say to God, God, totally my bad. All right? Like, don't blame Eve. Like, it's all on me. I take full responsibility and ownership for this. 
I should have known when the snake started talking, right? That was really strange. I should have killed the snake right there. But God, I didn't, you know, don't blame her. No, that is not what Adam did. If, if you know what it says in Genesis 3, go back and read it later today if you've never read it before. Literally, this is Adam's response. He points to Eve and he says, it was the what? Woman you gave me. And, and from that moment on, husbands and wives have been pointing at each other. It was the woman. It was, it was the, now, now, here's the thing. Here's the thing. The idea is, like, it's not me. I, I don't have to look at my own heart. No, no, I'm just going to point to someone else. And, and can we just be all, you know, all honest? I mean, like, we've seen this, haven't you? You've seen this. Some of you have lived this. Maybe it's a situation like this. Um, you get married to someone. And at the beginning stages of your marriage, or even right before you get married, you're expecting that your marriage is going to be the best marriage in the history of marriages. Like everybody who gets married at the beginning, they're excited. I've been a pastor for 20 years, and I've done a lot of weddings. I have literally never asked a couple, like, how are you feeling? I've never heard a couple say, this is going to tank. I mean, I give it six months. You know, that's probably about it. Really, seriously, it's not going to be very good, you know? No, like everyone's like, oh, well, have you seen my Instagram page? We're going to be amazing, right? Like our pictures are incredible. Like, so that's what you want. And then you get married, and, and sometimes it's beautiful and amazing, and, 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 and let's just be honest, sometimes it isn't. And maybe you had a, a relationship like this where you got married and every, I thought it was going to be great and then it wasn't and it got more and more difficult throughout the years and then it got to the place where you didn't even want to go home. Because you knew if you went home, you'd be fighting and arguing and bickering and complaining and jealousy and envy and, and, and bitterness, all of that. And then you got to the place where you said, well, you know what? I don't know why I'm experiencing this. I don't know why I'm dealing with it, but it must be the person I married. They're the problem, they're the issue. And then sometimes as a result of that, we divorce them. And then, and this doesn't happen every time, but some of you have seen this, you then get into another marriage relationship and at first it looks like it's gonna be beautiful and then you get into a situation a few years down the road where you start realizing that in the second marriage relationship, you were having the exact same problems that you did in the first marriage relationship and you're trying to figure out why. Like, why is it that I'm still dealing with the same stuff in marriage number two as I was in marriage number one? Can I give you the answer to the question? Because wherever you go, there you are. <laughs> see, see, you thought it was all her or all him, and really, it started right here. The source of temptation isn't out there. It's where? Come on, say it with me. It's in here. It's in here. Now, I'm not trying to say that people don't make things more difficult. I'm not trying to say there's no culpability on the other side. I get it. What I'm simply trying to bring to our understanding is that if we keep thinking that the source of our temptation is somebody else and it's there the problem and it's that, instead of going internal to our own hearts, we will never grow in maturity to stand in the moment of temptation. I mean, Jesus makes this so abundantly clear in Mark chapter 7. Can I take you there real quickly? Mark chapter 7, verse 20, Jesus speaking, he went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. Now, notice this, for it is from within, out of a person's, what's that word? Say it with me, city red, out of a person's what? Heart, that evil thoughts come. Real quick, all eyes up here. Have you ever had a situation where this thought enters into your mind that is so sinful and so wrong, and you have this thing like, where did that thought come from? 
Like, I'm a small group leader, you know? Like, I'm how to, where did that, and Jesus is like, where does it come? For it is from within, out of a person's, what did he say? Heart, that evil thoughts come. And then he goes on and lists sort of the root cause, the source of all these things, sexual immorality. Like, we all, when we blame somebody else, it's her, it's him, it's her, she didn't, we, no, no, no. She's just like, start here with your heart theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy. Why, why are you so jealous about that other person's vacation? Well, I wouldn't be so jealous and upset if they wouldn't post all their amazing pictures on social media. Like, they're going to, like, Bali, and I'm here for a staycation, and if they wouldn't post, post I wouldn't be so upset. Jesus is like, it has nothing to do with them. The source of temptation isn't out there. It's where? It's, it's in here. It's your own heart. Slander, arrogance, and folly. Verse 23, all these evils come from inside and defile a person. Here's the point. The point is, if you want to be a man or woman of confidence and character in the middle of a culture of compromise, in the context of, of temptation, then you have to recognize that the source isn't God, it's not somebody else, it's right here, which means that we have to have the courage to go to God and say, God, change my heart. God, forgive me. God, I own it. God, I take responsibility for it. God, I'm not going to blame somebody else. I'm going to start right here. Start changing me from the inside out. So if you want to stand, you have to know the source of temptation. The source of temptation isn't out there. It is in here. We'll continue in verse 13. James, and back to James. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire. And what's that next word? Say it with me. Enticed. Here's the second part. Two thoughts on the strategy of temptation. Here's the first one of two. Temptation always makes sin look enticing. That's why it's called temptation. If it wasn't enticing, it wouldn't be temptation. Broccoli, not tempta temptation, right? <laughs> Like in my 42 years of existence, I've never seen any human being walk by a plate of broccoli and go, oh my gosh, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I want to, I want to, I shouldn't, right? Like has anybody here ever seen it? No, because it's not enticing, right? Let me tell you what is enticing, brownies. Can I get an amen from anybody? Brownies, enticing. Pastelitos de guayaba. Can I get an amen from anybody here? Right? Okay, like enticing, at least for me. I mean, I'm just, just being honest here, right? Like, that's enticing. And that's, so here's the deal. Temptation always makes sin look enticing. That's the strategy. That's how it works, okay? And, and actually, it's interesting because the way James says it here, and you don't have to have it on the screen here, but he says this. He says, but each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire. Okay, so like our own sinful desire and enticed. Now, in the NIV, it says dragged away. I actually like the ESV translation a little bit better here because dragged away makes it feel like you don't have a choice, like you're coming with me. But the ESV translates it like this, and I think this is more accurate to the human experience. It says that we are lured away and enticed. See, that's, what that's how temptation works. It gets something, some, some form of sin that you're sort of predisposed to, and it makes it look enticing. And through that, it sort of lures you off the path of Jesus. It makes me think, when I think about this, it makes me think of my dog. Um, so for, uh, in December, we got a dog. Now, this was the culmination of many months and years of praying and fasting on the behalf of my children and my wife to convince me to say yes to a dog. But finally I did, 
And we got what I, I mean, I'm a little biased here, but I think he is the cutest beagle in all of South Florida. We got a picture of him. Look at this. I mean, come on. Is he not cute? Let's give it a, yeah. I mean, his name is Preacher the Beagle. Uh, obviously Preacher, because I'm a preacher. Sometimes when we're around people who don't know Jesus, and they're like, what's, you know, we're walking, and, oh, he's so cute. What's his name? We're like, Preacher. And they say, Creature? And we're like, no, 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 not Creature. Preacher, right? You need Jesus to come to City Rev or Crossway. One of the two. All right, let's do it. Now, now, Preacher the Beagle, my dog is an extrovert. Anybody here have a dog that's an extrovert, that just loves people? Does anybody have an introvert? Actually, I know what intro, introvert dogs, they're called cats, right? Like, that's what they are. Some of you have those strange, strange animals in your house. But we have a dog. Okay, so my dog, he loves being around people, and that's all he wants to do his entire life is just be with you. He's the biggest extrovert uh, I've ever met. And, uh, but, of course, you can't do that all the time, right? And, and you cannot leave when we leave or when we go to sleep. If you know anything about beagle puppies, you cannot leave them unattended. They have these noses. They, fly, they will get into trouble. So when it's time for him to go to bed or if it's time for us to leave, we put him in his crate. Now, don't send me emails. Oh, don't put him in his crate. He's too cute. Okay, he's going to be fine. It's a huge crate. It's like a penthouse. It's nicer than my roof. All right, it's a fine crate. It's doing okay. So we put him in his crate, and, uh, and s- but the thing is, he doesn't want to go in his crate because he wants to be with us. And so what happens is, let's say we're about to leave, and he recognizes that we're about to leave. Um, I, I open the crate, and he's you know, right over there, and I'll say, Preacher, let's go in the crate, buddy. Go in the crate. And he will sit, and he'll just stare at me like this, right? And, and we call it the beagle stare down. Like, he's just like, no, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to move. Now, you might think, well, maybe he doesn't know what you're saying. Maybe he does not understand your request to go in the crate. But I know he understands. Here's how I know he understands. Because when I move towards him to try to get him to go into the crate, what do you think he does? He moves away from me, right? So I had to find the one thing that my dog, Preacher, likes more than people. And if you have a beagle or have ever had a beagle, I'll tell you what it is. It's food. It is food. He loves food. And so what I do, and this is how I do it, I, I'll, I'll go to his little, you know, treat jar, I get a little treat, and he's sitting there, doesn't want to go in, and I take the treat, now I'm no lie, I literally put it in front of his nose, like, hey, 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 here we go, right, right, and then I take it, and then I, here's what I do, I lure him away, right, I say, come follow me, he literally, he'll follow the treat, follow the treat, and then what I do, get to the crate, now he does not want to go in the crate intellectually, but what I do is I make the crate look enticing, and how I make it look enticing is that I take the treat, and I throw the treat into the crate. And then what does he do? He just kind of goes in. And then I slam the door behind him, and we go home. Now, I don't slam it. I'm very gentle. Now, now here's the deal. The, I, I get him to do what he doesn't want to do by lure him in, luring him in and making it look enticing. That is exactly what happens in the moment of temptation. In the moment of temptation, sin always looks good. In the moment of temptation, sin always looks like the best path forward. In the moment of temptation, sin always makes perfect sense. That's how the enemy works. Temptation always, sin always seems enticing. That's how temptation works. And maybe you've been there. You're you're at work and you've made a big mistake at work. You've done something you know you shouldn't have done or you forgot to do something and it's big. And your boss calls you into her office, and she asks you about it, and you're a Christian, and so because you want to be a person of integrity, you're about to be, come clean, like, that was my fault, I messed up, I failed, I should should have done this, I shouldn't, whatever. You're about to come clean, but in that moment, all of a sudden, temptation hits. And the temptation here is to lie, to not own it, to act like you didn't know. 
And the way it works is temptation hits and it makes you feel like the lie is a really great idea. If you lie, you won't have to deal with the consequences for your mistake. If you lie, she will never know it was you. If you lie, maybe they'll peg it on that coworker you don't like anyway and he'll get fired, right? If it's gonna be a great idea. Temptation always makes him look enticing or maybe you have some information about another person at City Rev. They shared something with you in confidence and when they shared it with you, you said, I will never tell anybody, threw away the key. You happen to be having coffee with a mutual friend. You're sitting at Starbucks, conversation. It's a little bit boring and all of a sudden, temptation to gossip hits your mind. And you think to yourself, I've got to sit here for another 30 minutes. Might as well make it interesting. And if I share this juicy bit of tidbit of information about our mutual friend, well, this conversation will be great, and she will never find out, and it'll be totally fine, and we'll all just share it. Maybe we could even pray about it together, right? Like, temptation always makes sin look enticing, or maybe your marriage right now is really struggling, and there's not a lot of intimacy or closeness or affirmation. But there's this person in the office who's not your spouse, who's starting to give you some affirmation, some attention, and you're just feeling this temptation to not just disregard it, but to actually lean into it, to flirt a little bit, to make a little eye contact, to spend a little bit more time in their office. And the way that temptation works, it says, well, this isn't a big deal. I mean, you're not getting this affirmation at home. You might as well get it here. I mean, this is what you need. This is what you need to, to boost your self-esteem, to make you feel a little bit happier in the difficulties that you're going through. It's going to be okay. This is how temptation works. Temptation always makes sin look enticing. And I share that with you because I want you to have your eyes open. I want you to understand, City Rev, this week, listen, you will be tempted. And in the moment of temptation, the thing that you know you ought not do, ought not say, ought not think, right? That sin is going to look incredibly appealing. And James is trying to wave his hands at us and say, Christians, pay attention. Eyes opened. Be aware of the, the way temptation works so you can stand. Temptation always makes sin look enticing. Here's the second thing that goes along with it. That temptation always overpromises and underdelivers. Can we all say that out loud together? Let's do it. Ready? Let's read it. Temptation always overpromises and underdelivers. Look at verse 14 again. He says this, but each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. Okay, so when you've now given into it, when you've believed the lie, when you believe that, oh, this is really the best thing in the moment, even though I know this is not what God wants me to do, here's what you, you gives birth to sin, and then pay attention to the end result of sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to, does anyone see that? Say it with me, what? Death. Gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Now, what does he mean, the sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death? I, th I think it means a few things. One is, from the big meta picture, eschatologically, which means sort of the end of time, sin brings death. That's Paul's point in the book of Romans where he says the wages of sin is death. We do need to understand that if you persist in sin without the forgiveness of Jesus Christ, we've never brought your sins under the covering of Jesus Christ. Yes, the scripture says that the end result of that is eternal death, eternal punishment. That's part of what James is saying, but I think it's bigger than that. 
I think what James is trying to say is that sin like looks good in the moment, but when you give into it, it starts to bring death and decay and destruction and disruption to the most important parts of your life. Sin always overpromises and underdelivers. It reminds me years ago, I used to go once a week to a local sub shop. Uh, I will not name the shop in case you are one of the owners or you work there or whatever, but I would always get a tuna fish Tuna salad sandwich is what I would get. And every, like, Tuesday, I'd go in, tuna salad sandwich, tuna salad sandwich, tuna salad sandwich. And I remember one particular Tuesday, I'm leaving work, and I'm driving over there. I'm, my, my stomach is grumbling. I am very hungry. I get to the shop. I see the tuna salad right there, and I'm thinking, this is, like, really high quality. I'm sure this is very, very high quality tuna. And so I order it, and it is promising me. It's promised me it's going to taste good. It is by virtue of sitting there. Promise me that is probably healthy. I mean, this is really good. It's high quality. It's promising me it's going to satisfy. I order it. I eat it. And about two hours later, I get the worst case of food poisoning I've ever had. About 24 hours, I was out of commission. It was so bad that for years, I could not go back to this particular sub shop. If someone asked me, hey, you want to go get some? I would say no. I would rather have Taco Bell, okay? Like that would be a better choice for me than that. Here's why, because what did it do? It overpromised and it what? It underdelivered. And that's what sin always does. It overpromises and underdelivers. So in the moment of work temptation, where you're tempted to lie and not take ownership and not like say, yes, it was me and, and, and move forward. And, and here's what, it's overpromising. And then when you give into it and you lie, here's what it's doing. It's under-delivering. Because one thing that can happen, you've, some of you know this, is that your boss can find out and then you can get fired. But sometimes your boss doesn't find out. And it still brings death because what it does is it brings death to your character. It starts to change the way you operate in the world because now you say, well, I can just lie to cover my tracks. In the moment of gossip, well, how does that bring death? Well, sometimes they find out, and then you've destroyed that relationship, but sometimes they don't, and then it shifts you, and it changes you, and brings death to your character and your relationship capacity to be the kind of person that is a trustworthy person, slowly but surely, and in that moment of temptation to flirt with the person in your office who's not your spouse, how does that bring death? Well, guys, I've been pastor for a long time, and I just have to tell you something. One of the most painful conversations to have is with somebody who has cheated on their spouse and they have to now confess it. And one of the things that happens in that moment is over and over, you'll hear things like this. I never intended it to get that far, but it did. Because what did temptation do? It overpromised. This is not that big of a deal. And then all of a sudden, a nuclear bomb dropped on that relationship. And then for years, they're picking up the pieces. Some of you know what's going on because you've been through that story. Here's what I'm simply trying to say. Here's how it works. Temptation overpromises and under delivers. It is always going to tell you it will be the best path forward and it will always bring destruction, whether it's something specific or simply the erosion of the peace of God in your life or the erosion of the joy of God in your life or the erosion of the, the, the hope of God in your life or the erosion of the sense of the presence of God in your life. The more we persist in sin, the more we experience the death that sin brings. If you're gonna be a man or woman, of character in this kind of culture. 
And you have to be willing to stand and understand the source of temptation is not out there, it's in here, it's in my heart. And then the strategy of temptation, temptation always lo- makes sin look enticing and it always overpromises and underdelivers. That brings me to the last thing I want to say this morning. The last thing I want to say I think is, is really, really important, right? Because as a pastor, I feel like in a passage like this, I have to hold two truths in tension. The first truth is this, is that I think that what James is doing, and this is what I'm trying to do here uh, in this message, is he's calling you to a different kind of life. Like, like part of what James is doing here is he's looking at you, City Rev, and he's saying, if you're a follower of Jesus here, he's saying, listen, listen, I want you to understand you're called to be someone different. You're not just called to be the person that always crumples every time the, the wind of uh, temptation blows. No, you're called to be someone different. And so part of my responsibility this morning is to say to you, live a life worthy of the calling of God that God has on you. Live a life worthy of the fact that you are a son or a daughter of God. Step in with a strong spine and clear eyes this week and understand the way the enemy's going to work and temptation and stand strong. Like, that's part of what I want to say. I want you to leave here like, listen, I'm not going to give in. I want to step into the holiness of God. That's part of my call here in this passage. But there's another thing I need to hold in tension. And the other side is this, is that we don't always stand strong. And sometimes we fail. And sometimes we fall. As a matter of fact, there might be some of you who are sitting here and you really want this message to be done because as soon as I started talking about temptation and the consequences and death and all that it brings, it just kept reminding you of some failure that you've had recently, last night or last week or last year, and the consequences that you've reaped because of it. And you just want it to be done. Like, John, just stop talking. I'm done. Okay, I get the point. Move on, right? Because I'm just filled with guilt and shame. And so I have to hold this tension like, okay, yes, let me call you to holiness. And then, yes, what do we do? What is the grace of God available to us when we do fall? And it brings me to our last point. And I want you to hear this and let this settle in your heart. And it is this. Giving into temptation doesn't have to be the end of the story. Doesn't have to be the end of the story. What happens when you fall? What happens when next week you give in? Or this afternoon when you get home, you give in to temptation? Or a year from now? I want you to be reminded of the goodness and the grace of God in the gospel of Jesus. Through the words of John the Apostle in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, I want to read these to you as if John was speaking directly to you. So I just want you to hear this as if he's talking to you when you've failed or, or given in to temptation or fallen. Here's what the scripture says, the word of God to you. If you confess your sins. He, Jesus, is faithful and just and will forgive your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross and paid the penalty for your sins, because on the cross he bore the full weight of the wrath of God for your sins and he died and he was buried and he rose again. If you come to the Father in the name of Jesus, he is faithful and he is just to forgive your sins. There's some of you who are here this morning who have never done that, like ever. Maybe you consider yourself a religious person. Maybe you're someone who's a philosophical person and spiritual person, but you've never come to the place where you've come to the Father in the name of Jesus and said, forgive me. Can I just say to you that his forgiveness is for you today? Like if you will come to him and say, God, I've messed up, I've sinned, I've failed, I've fallen. 
Like, I need forgiveness. Let me just say, he is faithful because of what Jesus has done and just to forgive your sins. Or if you're a Christian and you've messed up, again, we go back to the well of grace that never runs dry. The last thing I'll say in the last verse I'll read and then I'll, I'll close, it's just that some of you might be here and say, but John, maybe you're struggling because you say, but John, I've, I've asked for forgiveness a lot. Like, like, I just keep doing it and I feel like I keep messing up and I just sometimes, I just wonder. Like, John, could it be that, like, I've outstayed my welcome? Could it be that, that like, I've asked for forgiveness too many times and, like, he doesn't forgive me anymore? And to you, I just want you to hear the words of Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 22 and 23. The steadfast love of the Lord, it never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. Verse 30, 23, it says they, and the they here is, is, is referring to his mercies. Okay, his mercies, they are, and what are those next three words? Can we say them out loud together, City Rehab? They are what they are, new every morning. I want to say it again, like, like this means something to us. They are what, let's say it with me, they are what they are, new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. Like, like, like yeah, like he, here's the thing. Here's the thing, if tomorrow morning you wake up and the first thing you do is sin, I want you to be reminded that the mercies of God are new for you tomorrow morning. And if next week you trip up and fall in a way you never thought you would, I want you to hear this and let those words resonate in your heart from this Sunday morning. I want you to be aware that his mercies are new every morning. If 10 years from now, you find yourself in a spot where you have said, I can't believe that this is what I've done. I want you to hear the words of lamentations coursing through your veins that the mercy of God is what? Say it with me, City Rev. It is new every morning. There is not one morning that God doesn't look at you and say, my mercies are new for you. My grace is sufficient for you. My forgiveness is available to you. This is the God we serve. This is the God we serve. So yes, I want to say, City Rev. Straighten your spine, lift up your head, walk out of this place and say, I'm going to stand strong in the moment of temptation because I have the Spirit of God living in me. And I'm also going to say, when you fail, just don't forget His love, His mercy, and His grace. It is new every morning. Let's pray. God, I am so grateful that even in our darkest moments and even in the times that we trip up and trip up and trip up that you don't leave us that you don't let us go but that you continue to bring your mercy and so I pray right now for this church, God, that you would minister through the power of your Holy Spirit, the mercy and forgiveness of God. There are some who are here this morning and they're just feeling the weight of guilt. Holy Spirit, now would you come and wash over them your mercy and your grace? Would you remind them of the work of Jesus Christ for them that it would be applied to their heart through the power of the Holy Spirit right now? And then God, would you give us the courage and the strength to be the kind of men and women and middle school and high school students and college students who walk out of this place with a commitment to holiness and to following after you and to standing strong in the face of temptation. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus and everyone this morning said together, amen. God bless you guys. Thanks for listening. 
For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.